This is the Improve Photography Podcast, episode number 221. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Improve Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I'm joined by Jeff Harmon and Brent Bergherm. Hey, guys. Hello. Uh, that was nice unison. It really uh, yeah. gets a little Routine. shot of adrenaline in for us. <laughs> Well, the big news around the photography industry this week was the Sony A9. This is Sony's full-frame, mirrorless, super high-end camera that is supposed to compete with uh, the Nikon D4S, the Canon 1DX. This is the the, the high end of them. And so I'm going to quickly kind of introduce the camera, and then I want to kind of hear what you guys have to say about it. So it's 24 megapixels, 20 frames a second, um, blackout-free viewfinder as you're shooting those 20 frames a second, almost 700 autofocus points. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Five-axis image stabilization. This is a Canon EF mount. It's E full-frame mount. Uh, it has a, a electronic shutter up to one thirty-two thousandth of a second, and battery life is not so great at 480 shots, um, and it has 4K output. So it looks really impressive, but honestly, if you compare this to other models, like just the specs, I'm not saying it's the same thing at all. I'm just saying just the specs Compare this to the Fuji X-T2, which only costs $1,500, um, compared to this camera, which costs $4,500. <laughs> the Fuji X-T2 has 24.3 megapixels, so actually slightly, slightly higher in megapixel count. It shoots 14 frames a second instead of the 20 on this one that's $4,500. I... I it doesn't have 700 autofocus points, but when you get above 200 autofocus points, like, does it matter anymore, right? Uh, like, you look at just the specs, and obviously they don't tell the true story. I'm not saying they're the same camera. I'm just saying that um, this is a this is a high price for something that just by the numbers alone, um, while impressive, it's not a giant step forward. What did you guys think? So two of the things that I really thought were, were neat about this camera, um, the way that they're reading the sensor is a is a very big difference from any other kind. That's how they're getting that blackout free viewfinder, which means like as you're as you are holding down the shutter button on a lot of cameras, especially the DSLRs, even though you might get this high frame rate, like maybe uh, seven ten frames a second, it goes black as it's shooting. And you know that all of the light has to go to the sensor instead of hitting the mirror. And what you see is is a very disrupted kind of thing. And there's nothing none of that at all in this blackout free shooting mode when it's electronic shutter. So even the electronic shutter with other cameras, you see kind of this black screen as it's uh, as it's shooting. So that's cool. I like the way that they have have really. Um, made advancements there in how quickly they can read the sensor. It will do away with some of the other things like rolling shutter effects, distortion effects that happen at really high frame rates um, because or really fast shutter speeds. And, and that's really encouraging. That's, I know Canon is going after that really hard too. They want to develop a technology that instead of reading the sensor a row at a time, they can read the, the full sensor all at once. And uh, it's a technology they're working on. So, to see Sony kind of almost getting there. I think they're still reading it a row at a time, but they've just really dramatically improved it by putting some memory in between the sensor and the, the output. 
on the camera. So, so I like that. I think that's cool. I've also seen some hands-on reports. So even though the battery life was reported very abysmal levels from Sony, um, some hands-on, Tony Northrop took it out and he said he got two hours of shooting and uh, 4,500 shots and the battery was only at 66%. So it hadn't gone down, like, you know, depleted the battery all oh, the way. Oh, that's good. Because I see 480 shots and yeah. it shoots 20 frames a second. It's going to take me a second to do the math here, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. we're talking I, I about like one other, minute here. <laughs> I saw some other early tweets from uh, from some people who'd done the math and figured that the battery, with 20 frames a second, the battery is depleted in like two and a half minutes. Nice. <laughs> wow. Nice. If, if it went purely by the numbers that Sony reported or, or released with the camera, that would have been not so great. But uh, no. But with their the hands-on experience, that seems to be really good, which is encouraging that maybe Sony's figured out how to deal with the battery problem. Yeah, so I, I guess I want I want to walk back what I said. I, I want to make it clear that I'm not. Uh, I I think this is sounds like a really impressive camera, and if you're the sports photographer, you're the guy that wants to shoot the One DX. I used to own a a Nikon. Was it the D4 or D4S at the time? I, and I owned one of those, um, and they're amazing cameras, but they're very specific. They're meant to right. do one thing. Um, they're, you know, high frame. These are for action, live action things that are happening. It's not really the landscape photography kind of camera. Um, and so why would somebody choose this, though, when Sony does not even have long lenses uh, or long lenses for for uh, this type of shooting i mean they announced the 100 to 400 with this but you know that's a slow lens it's not like a you know 400 to 8 that you could go shoot a professional sports game with and so it just I, I don't quite understand who this is for yet if they had the serious sports lenses and stuff i'd say oh yeah there's a monster i'd go shoot sports with this clearly but since they don't it, it kind of leaves me in the who is this for because you have the a7r2 that's already fantastic for the landscape for the you know portrait photographer for the studio kind of stuff and and then there's not this for sports so i'm not sure who buys this camera well i think they're probably trying to change the change that landscape a little bit as far as who buys it because in some of the details of the article i'm reading here when it's in that electronic shutter mode, it can go all the way down to f11 before it cannot track focus. So while with our standard DSLRs, we might be able to go down to f8 or f56 on most of our lenses before we lose our super fast AF, being able to go down to f11 and still keep your super fast AF is pretty impressive. So while that lens that they released, the 1-400 to is a slow lens at 5.6, it's still going to perform well on this body according to what Sony, I would think is going to hope is going to do anyway for, for sports photographers. So if you can go out to your game and you have something that weighs a third of what your Nikon shooter or your Canon shooter is doing, that can certainly be a, a big benefit. Probably a little bit of a push. <clears throat> I don't see Canon shooters and, and Nikon shooters no. making a jump for sure. <laughs> but no. for those folks who have the 4,500 to drop on this, they're going to get the shots at their kids' soccer games and whatnot that other people just aren't going to get. Yeah. You, you, I'm, they may be counting on the, on really being able to boost the ISO too. They're, they're of course killing it on low or, or very good high ISO noise performance. So that even though that lens is slow at five, six, you can boost up the ISO and, and maybe compensate uh, a lot for that. 
exactly. Yeah, I I was curious as I read the marketing material for this because I I, I want to be I'm very excited by what Sony's doing. I don't mean to say right. otherwise. <laughs> I, I right. think there's a really good chance I'm going to buy the so- Sony A7R three when it comes out. Really good chance of that. Um, so I'm excited what, by what they're doing. I'm just, I, I, this one was a little bit curious to me. So I read all the marketing materials, everything they got, not once anywhere in the marketing materials. Does it even use the phrase low light? Nothing. And on the main sales page, they didn't even talk about the ISO on this camera. And so I, there's obviously a reason for that because that's a, you know, a pretty major camera spec. I'm, I'm sure it does quite well. It goes up to 51,000 ISO. Uh, and, and my guess is it's going to do so pretty admirably, especially because it's only 24 megapixels. But right. to me, that was a signal that one, we're going to see a new A7S that they really want to talk about low light there. Uh, and my hope is that we're also going to see that with the A7R3, that rather than just going crazy on megapixels, that uh, we're going to see a really monster low light camera there and that's why they didn't want to uh, make that the selling point of this camera thoughts yeah you might be right there's certain you're right there's a, a definite absence of mentioning low light performance we're hoping <laughs> i'm hoping because i think <laughs> i'm excited about that sony a7r3 we'll see what when, when it comes out it's supposed to be later this year but that's a camera that i could definitely want to purchase i'm not going to ditch fuji i love fuji you know i do uh but but will i have a little affair with the sony a7r3 <laughs> there's, there's a good chance of that happening <laughs> Well, Brent, you've been talking a little bit about digging deeper into some old photo locations. What have you been working on? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on our Facebook group for the Latitude uh, podcast listeners, we had some people asking, and I just thought I would touch on it here a little bit as well, and that is digging deeper uh, in your photography, whether you're revisiting a place third or fourth or fifth time, uh, but also maybe you're going somewhere else and you're inundated with awesome images that you're doing some research on and you want to do something to help you go a little further than what you're seeing uh, when you do your research. And so the first uh, topic there is if you're revisiting a place, what can you do? Because sometimes you might just be bored of the place or you might, um, for instance, I told uh, some people like in the place where I live in Southeast Washington, I hardly shoot when I'm home because, you know, I've lived here for 20 years and it just doesn't inspire me much anymore. I've got that backyard syndrome kind of thing going on. And other people are like, how can you say that? You live in such a beautiful location. <laughs> like, I know I do. I'm kind of spoiled, but still it's that, it's that inspiration kind of thing. So just some ideas to uh, get the ball rolling and hopefully find some new shots. And the first thing Wait, to go with... Can I can I share a story that goes right along with that, uh, Oh, Brent? sure. But please. I, when I lived in Southwest Florida, when I was in law school... I, there was a, I heard from somebody that you could shoot burrowing owls in this, in this neighborhood and just kind of the empty lots and the burrowing owls are these tiny little owls that you never really see flying around. They kind of just sit there by their nest. They dig holes in the ground and they have this huge bug yellow eyes. I mean, just huge eyes. If you've seen them, you'll remember they're just the coolest looking animal. And so I heard somebody say they were they were in a spot. So I drove up to Cape Coral and I was photographing them. And there was this guy there with this monster 800 millimeter lens and stuff. So Mm. we started chatting 
and I, uh, it was obvious that he had a thick accent. And so I said, where are you from? Um, and he says, oh, I'm from Germany. And I said, oh, cool. What are you, what are you doing here in Florida? And he said, shooting the burrowing owls <laughs> <laughs> nice. and I, I said well i mean yeah but like are you here on vacation he's like no you have burrowing owls here i came to shoot burrowing owls <laughs> nice <laughs> and like it was that thing where it was you know it was in my backyard uh, practically and so yeah. it was neat to shoot but eh, i could go do that absolutely any day and so it That's just right. loses the allure <laughs> But think of all the other people that aren't shooting those burning owls and he's getting those shots that, you know, everyone else is going, whether it's the Everglades or, you know, the other water features that you have out there in Southern Florida. So uh, he's still done his research and getting some unique shots. So that's nice too, mm -hmm. but that's good. Yeah. So if you have re gone to a place several times, whether it's just visiting or someplace where you live, I suggest restricting yourself uh, to a certain piece of gear. And maybe it's something that, you should uh, either rent one or you don't have a, or you have a lens where you just haven't used it very often. You know, maybe you haven't used that 50 millimeter in three years or something like that, whatever lens you have that will restrict your view a little bit and force you into a different way of thinking. That can be a good way to, to get out there and create some fresh images on a subject that maybe you uh, have, you feel you've shot to death, but you know, there's a new way of looking at it with a different lens possibly. So shooting just a little bit longer, shooting longer, shooting wider, you know, just depending on what is your norm, just don't allow yourself to do your norm okay. is, is, is the rule of thumb to go off with that. And if you've got that telephoto uh, type lens, 200 or longer, definitely do landscapes, uh, long, long telephoto landscapes. So you can really compress the scene a whole lot and that can really make a good thing. Uh, you know, if you're used to your wide angle landscapes, let's say, so just something different, use different gear, get something uh, unique going in there that you're just not used to. Might be a time of day that's different because maybe you're, uh, you just never shoot in the middle of the day, but possibly you, know, you could still find something. You might have to look a lot harder, but you could probably still find something even during the middle of the day when the light just isn't as good as we normally like to, to see it with a low angle and the like. But also some things that I will... Uh, be looking at is if I'm returning to a place and I have a pretty good idea of what's there, I can start to pre-visualize. Pre and this is where I think for me anyway, the act of pre-visualization, that's hard to say for some reason, <laughs> the act of pre-visualization actually makes uh, a lot of sense for me because I'm somewhat familiar. And so I know what I could do and I'm trying to then explore what can I do? What can I do that's unique and different? And maybe there's something I can go and hunt for and I can be really receptive to the, those kinds of new things that I'm looking for. That's a good point. I almost always get better photos, probably same for you guys, when I go visit a, a location the second time. Yeah. The first time, you didn't really know what it was going to be like. You know, maybe you've seen photos from there. And so you get there and you can only think about what those other photos are. But once you feel like, okay, I've got that. And now right. you're going back. You know what the whole location is like. You can see, oh, you know, my take on this would be wider. My take on this would be an aerial shot or whatever That's else, right. you know, have a model mm -hmm. in the photo in front, whatever. Once you have seen it and really taken in the place, to me, that's really helpful to go yeah. a step further at that point. The first time you I'm there, I usually don't get the good stuff. You bet. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, or, and, or pre-visualization, even maybe the first time you've been somewhere with uh, the assist of like the PhotoPills app, trying to figure out where uh, landscape features might be like the moon, uh, the Milky Way, whatever that might be. And design, you know, going out there to build a photo, to create a photo rather mm-hmm. than just capture whatever happens to be there when you're there. Right. That, that kind of planning and preparation really changes how things turn out. The last time, last supermoon we had, that was one of the things that I did. I knew I wanted to go, I wanted to get more than just the moon. I already had right. shots of the moon. And when it's just the moon, there's no sense of perspective on how big that moon looks. It's just the moon. So right. I really lo- wanted to make sure I got a foreground, a midground, and the moon in the shot. And I planned that ahead of time. So it was a place near me, but it was a place I'd never taken a photo before. A bridge with then the mountains in the background and the moon. And That's awesome. uh, and going to do that, I, I knew exactly what I wanted. And it took longer to get there than I, I had hoped. I'd hoped that uh, that things would work out better. I wasn't familiar enough with how the PhotoPills app works to, to put all the pieces together properly. <laughs> I'm still not. That thing is so confusing. <laughs> I'm oh making a lot goodness. more sense of it. I'm, I'm working on, on uh, a Photo Taco episode on that because I'm, I'm getting it a lot better now the more that I've cool. used it. But cool. um, but it, it, that night, I knew what I wanted and it didn't quite work the way I wanted it. But because of how I had visualized it and, and uh, I took enough shots surrounding it, I could get to what I wanted with a composite. So that worked out really, really well. It's one of my most favorite shots of the moon because of that effort and uh, really taking a different look at it. Oh, that's awesome. cool. So I had an experience with this um, this week. So I just released a video on the Improved Photography YouTube channel. And I'm going to give myself a little plug here. Go check out the Improved Photography YouTube channel. I've been putting a ton of work into it. I want to make the videos more interesting. Uh, They used to just be just recordings of of the podcasts. And that's good, but they're a little bit boring just to watch people at a desk. So (laughs) I've I've been trying to get some much more interesting videos going. And I, I had a, a story that I released in one today. The video is called Trying to Land a Landscape Photography Client. And it's exactly what you're talking about, Brent. I, I In Boise, ah, I have a hard time shooting. And mm-hmm. so I, ah, it just it's Boise and it's just sagebrush <laughs> in the foothills, you know. It's just hard for me to get excited about it. So I shoot a ton when I go on trips and then not so much while I'm in town. Right. So I guess coincidentally, if you live in the Boise Valley, go to improvephotography.com slash Boise. I just set up a little group whenever I'm going to go out and shoot around Boise. I'm just going to send everybody a text to a bunch of people and say, hey, come shoot with me. Uh, It's just a free little group uh, just to encourage us all to get out and shoot more if if you happen to live in Boise. But I got a call from a landscape photography client. It's a developer uh, building a huge 1800 home complex uh, complex uh, uh, subdivision subdivision basically out in the foothills and they wanted beautiful landscape photography up there and I thought, hmm big client, deep pockets, landscape photography sign me up. This <laughs> That's is <right>. great. <laughs> so I went out to the property and I started shooting and man I I got some photos that I was really happy with that I shared in that video uh, and I put on the podcast group and it was in the foothills above home, above my house. And I posted them on Facebook and everybody in Boise keeps saying, where is this? This doesn't look like the foothills. Like (laughs) it's there. You just, you got to dig a little bit deeper to find it. And I forget that. Yeah. Cool. 
So one last thing to to think about that I have here on this on this topic is maybe it's your first time going, but possibly it could be as a as a return trip as well. And that is to read beyond the guidebooks. And I am returning this summer to Croatia after having been there 12 years ago, which kind of stinks. I wish I could have gotten back there sooner. But I went there uh, two weeks purely for photography, and it's absolutely drop-dead gorgeous with the waterfalls and all of the architecture and the Venetian ruins and all that kind of stuff, Roman ruins. But I'm now in the middle. I just shouldn't say in the middle. I'm started an 1,100-page book. I actually didn't realize how long it was when I bought it, but it's a travelogue of this lady that went traveling all throughout Yugoslavia in the 40s. And so it just gives you so much different uh, context of historical perspective, and that can also help you view what you're seeing in a different light and you That's can probably cool. make you can probably make different photographs because of it now the first time i went i bought a book uh it was just after the book was written just after there there was a war of separation where they uh declared freedom from yugoslavia and so the guy started traveling there in like the uh, the mid 90s and whatnot and it was a great book uh, to go for the first time, but I was like, mm, you know, this is my second time. I want something even, even deeper. Well, I'm 1,100 page deeper now. Uh, <laughs> I, I should say I'm going to be, uh, hopefully, by the time by the time uh, September rolls around. 1,100 so pages and like 40 naps. You'll be oh, like sitting there trying to read. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, I'm at least going to read the areas, the sections that are on the areas to which I'm traveling, which is the Dalmatian coast of Croatia and a little bit in Bosnia, Herzegovina. So uh, again, though, it's just going to give me that historical context so I can understand the people better. I can understand the subjects that I'm looking at better. And I can hopefully make images that tell a stronger story. And that's what I'm looking for. That's really cool. I'm glad to see you're doing that. Kind of yeah, help you to be fall awesome. in love with the subject on a on a deeper yeah. level and notice some things that I bet you wouldn't notice otherwise. You bet. And if I'm going to keep my fingers crossed, if it all goes well, by summer 2018, I'm going to host a, a tour over there. So Ooh, stay tuned. Count me stay in. Tuned. That sounds great. Yeah, it'll be awesome. And I will mention to the listeners, if you haven't taken a second to go subscribe to the Latitude podcast, Go give it a try. Yeah, uh, they're yeah, doing absolutely. a Thank really you. nice job with it. Um, I, you're starting to really hit your stride. Those, those last couple episodes have been really, really good. Appreciate uh, it. So definitely check that out. I always say when you're listening to a new podcast, you gotta give it several episodes because it's hard, isn't it? Like it's hard <laughs> it when is. you're starting a new show to to just get everything right. And you guys are really starting to hit your stride. The episodes are quite good. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I've got one that we recorded recently. It's just about to be released. And then Brian has an interview that uh, he did uh, with a female photographer talking about some things that are specific to uh, the female listeners. And then some of the other topics we have coming up, we're going to look at uh, just traveling and registering your gear so you can come back in the country without too much hassle from our Border Patrol folks and just a couple other fun travel things like that. So those are topics that are coming up in future episodes. Cool. Well, Jeff, you wanted to talk about uh, autofocus micro adjust, but I am going to hijack your topic for one second (laughs) because we haven't heard a good report from you yet on the 70 to 200. Well, okay. So the the Tamron 70 to 200 G2, 
Um, I haven't had like the best opportunity to shoot with it yet. So what it's been raining and <laughs> terrible weather That's here. That's no excuse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What, what and, else you got, uh, Jeff? Dog so, sick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he ate my home, my, my lens. He's not feeling well now. No, I, I did take it out to a soccer game. So I had my, my son had a soccer game and it was really nice to be able to reach the other side of the field. <laughs> with the 200 nice and uh great performance uh, out of it was it was so good i loved how the autofocus worked with that lens i got beautiful beautiful shots something i definitely wasn't able to get before and uh super impressed with that really impressed with the build but i'm definitely feeling the weight too <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a heavy heavy lens compared to anything else i've had it's it's a very very heavy lens yeah i played yeah. with one in the in idaho camera here i was with sharky james and there was a tamron rep showing us all the tamron right. stuff and so i got to play with one really well built it feels yes. nice that that's the one thing i would say that sigma has had the lead on tamron over the last couple of years is the the sigma lenses just feel beautiful and expensive and until recently, the Tamron lenses have felt kind of cheapy, but this is really nice. It's a yeah. nice build quality. Yeah, it's very different. So I also have the Tamron 24 to 70 and the, the build quality difference between the two is really apparent. It's, uh-huh. it's not the same kind of lens. So I'm, I'm excited to see Tamron in the future and, and how it is they deal with the lenses. But I'm, I'm very excited to shoot that that uh, 70 to 200. I, I want to go out and do some landscape. I, I have, so speaking kind of with Brent's topic again, going deeper, one of my goals for this year is to shoot uh, a panorama of a landscape in multiple, like a day to night or multiple season mm. uh, oh, landscape cool. and, and merge that together. Nice. I want to, I want to go through that. I think it'll challenge me in a way that I haven't been yet. And I want to use that 70 to 200 to do it. So I'm excited to get to do that. Uh, the sunsets and sunrises haven't coincided with my work schedule yet. I'm, I'm leaving before sunrise and coming home after sunset. Oh. So uh, I, that'll change here soon in the summer and, and give me more chances to be able to go do some of that. The reviews cool. that I've seen so far are, I mean, this is the Tamron 7200 F2.8. This is the G2, the new one. And it, it costs half half of what the Nikon or Canon version costs. And it's just, I mean, totally professional. If I were shooting DSLRs, there's no way I'd spend (laughs) $2,500 on a Canon or Nikon 7200. And I've owned both of those lenses. They're beautiful, but no, I'm not going to spend over a thousand dollars more for something that's just maybe one or 2% better at this point. So cool. All right. I hijacked your topic. Now about autofocus micro adjust. <laughs> All right. So um, this has been on the list of topics for Photo Taco for some time now. It's been over a year that it's been on my backlog as a list of, a, of something to, to tackle. And I hadn't really ever got into doing it. I, I roughly knew what it was doing and what it was for. I just hadn't had, actually, I hadn't had good enough quality glass to actually uh have it be a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. I had these very slow lenses where you didn't get enough the aperture wide open enough for it to to really show you what if your if your autofocus was not quite working correctly. And um, after I've got the now that I have the Tamron twenty four to seventy and the seventy to two hundred, I have a couple of lenses where they were finally fast enough that it might have made a difference. So I, I decided to dive in to that topic, do some research on it, and. 
the first lens I did was with the Tamron 24 to 70. And um, I was noticing as I, it's been my portrait lens, I've been using it a ton on portraits. And I was noticing that um, as I go and zoom in and I'm working on some, some of the post-processing, I was comparing it to what I could see Connor because he does a lot of live post-processing and Nick with his training videos. I, I've seen what it looks like for them just at 1080p because that's what the training videos and, and live streaming looks at. Um, the, the sharpness that they could get, especially in the eyes, was just very different from what I was getting. And I figured, well, it's just because I'm not shooting nearly as well as those two guys. They're, they're nailing the, the focus better than I am. But it, it kept being a, a thing over and over and over. And since I finally decided to try out this autofocus micro adjustment, uh, I, was, I was seeing, I hope that's it. I hope that's the case. It's not just because I have a crop sensor and I can't quite get the same sharpness. So I, I did this test and you, on, my, on my 70 Mark II, you can do, you can, for each lens, you can do two spots. You can do a wide focal length and the long focal length at the end, two ends of the zoom. So I started with the long. That's kind of the recommendation on the process. Start with the long. So I did. And, and, what, and is it, what does that process look like? Like, are you setting so a, a ruler up at an angle? Is that how you're doing it? I tried three different methods and I'm going to go and like, that's going to be the, the photo taco podcast episode this coming Tuesday uh, on 420, April 25th is going to be lots of 30 minutes of total detail on okay, <laughs> this process. Good. So I, I'll, I'll save the the details on that for that episode and, and what's there. But um, it, what I wanted to go through was I, I started out at the 70 millimeters down of my Tamron lens, did some testing, and it, I just it came out at about minus three. So there's a scale of minus 20 to plus 20, and it was minus three, meaning it was slightly back focusing. So a little bit past the depth, the, the focus point, the sharpest point would be just slightly past where it was I put the focus point on the subject. And when you say and slightly, are we talking about, you know, five it, millimeters? Not enough that it really even looked different and seriously different in the testing. I could tell a minor difference, but it was really, really small. So I was initially very disappointed. Like I went to all this effort and <laughs> it was a, a minus three difference. I can't hardly tell the difference at all in the, in the image. But I, I continued on and I went to the 24 millimeter end of that same lens and it was a huge difference. It was minus 13. So it was front focusing a lot. Huh. Enough that I, even though I put the focus point right on the, the model's eye in portraits, it was front focusing so much that I never got sharp. Uh, the autofocus just missed very consistently because the, the 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 lens and the camera combination together was front focusing a huge huge amount. So I, I did the testing. I set those settings into my camera, and then when I, I just recently did an engagement portrait shoot, and my goodness, is that a huge difference now? I got really sharp eyes in that portrait shoot that I was not getting prior to doing this process, this autofocus micro adjustment. It made a massive, massive difference. And it doesn't mean it would be for everybody or every lens. It's gonna be very specific to your lens and your camera and how they were manufactured and the little tiny flaws that you'll have that were within them and as you combine them together. So you could even take my same Tamron 24 to 70 lens and put it on your camera and you'll, you'll come up with different results on on how this micro adjustment stuff works. Okay, I got a question. 
I don't know the answer to this, so I'm hoping you do. So <laughs> I could be wrong on this. I don't think Fuji has this as as no. as an ability to micro There's adjust. A and then I thought about it and I thought, well, duh, it's because the sensor is doing the focus. And so That's it right. can't get off. That's, yes. <laughs> so Mirrorless this is just a DSLR thing, have. right? That's correct. Ah, it's okay. only for DSLRs. Yep. Huh. Yep. Uh, well, yeah, so, handy. <laughs> did, it, did it still give you the problem or did you test it when you were doing uh, shooting in live view? Because if you're shooting in live view, it's going to focus the same way the Fuji's focusing. No, that's that's right. It's if if you focus, if you use live view, then it, the, the you won't have a problem with, with sure. micro adjustment. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a way to get around it. And that's a way you can probably tell if you need to do it. If you can take some shots in live view and it seems to focus pretty well, and then you take some shots using the viewfinder, and it struggles, then you'll know you you need to go do this micro uh, right. micro adjustment. Yeah, I'm just well, glad I good. learned something new. This is cool. <laughs> well, <there's, laughs> I hadn't really ever thought about that. I hadn't thought that yeah. it wouldn't be necessary on a mirrorless. Huh? Fancy there's, that. There's a little something further to take it with the Sigma dock, and I've not used the Tamron dock, but then now they have a, a dock that you can plug your lens into. Uh, but with the Sigma, you get four zoom ranges uh, in which for those zoom lenses in which to uh, do the focus calibration. Right. And then you can also uh, take four at that widest uh, mark on the lens, let's say. You then have the closest focusing, you have mid to mid-range focusing, and then the infinity focus. And so you have 16 total areas that you're calibrating on the Sigma when you use the USB dock, if you have a zoom lens. Yeah, I haven't used the the tap dock for my Tamron lens either. It will only work with the G2. It won't. Right. They don't even offer it for the 24 to 70. Right. They don't have the options. So the only and so in, in talking to that same rep you were, Jim, uh, Sharky introduced me to him to, as well. Um, what he recommended, and, and this would be something you can do if your if your DSLR doesn't support micro adjustment. And it's crazy to me that they don't all <laughs> support yeah. it. It's just another place where the camera manufacturer is saying, well, well, this will be a reason that people will want to upgrade their cameras. They'll spend more on a camera to get this feature. And I guess if I was there on there, I would do the same to try to get people to buy more. No, Jeff, you'd be nice to <laughs> us. I know you would. <laughs> but it, and it's crazy too, because I've even looked like I thought, well, maybe they're the, the Magic Lantern firmware, maybe they can add it through that. They can't. They said hmm. that there's there's something there's a there's something about the the way the firmware operates that they have not been able to reverse engineer and figure out how to crack this nuts. So they they hmm. can't offer it either. Magic Lantern doesn't offer support for this. So if if you're in the case where you don't have a camera that supports this feature and there's a lot of them that don't, then one of the options if you notice this is happening, one of the options if you purchase the lens fairly recently the manufacturer may offer a way for you to send the camera and the lens together to them and they will do it for you. And with some other tools, they'll, they'll uh, kind of make the micro adjustments to the lens most likely I would guess. Anyway. Um, so, so that's a possibility. That's what the, the Tamron rep made sure to tell me you can do that. If, if you're having trouble with the 24 to 70 and the focusing, then just send the camera and the lens to us. There's a service where the service itself is free. You'll pay the shipping to send the camera, of course, but the service itself is free and they, they need it for about five days and they'll, they'll get it all synced up. Okay. I got a question for you to kind of bring together our, all of our discussions today. 
Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to delve into this one too far, but I, I'm just curious what you guys think. So we talked about the new Sony A9. Uh, now we're talking about micro adjust on, on DSLRs. There has always been an advantage to DSLR cameras over mirrorless cameras. You know, at first it was, you know, basic things like, uh, you know, megapixels. Uh, it was, there were no full frame options in mirrorless. Um, and then it, you know, my uh, megapixels certainly caught up. And then we saw the speed of the cameras, of a mirrorless cameras, uh, dramatically outperforming DSLR um, competition. And, you know, with each spec, mirrorless has caught up. And so my question to you guys is, does the DSLR have any, just in general, I just, I mean, they're amazing DSLR bodies out there, mm-hmm. really awesome DSLRs. But I'm just saying in general, is there anything that a DSLR does that a mirrorless camera just does not do as well? That question is probably harder to answer these days than it was a couple years ago, for (laughs) sure. Because when we look at what Sony is doing with how fast that is and all those 693 uh, focus points, they are saying they are the phase detection, but they're on sensor phase detection, just like very similar to anyway, Canon's dual pixel AF. So, Every you know, it's there. They keep pushing the the envelope closer and closer, and there's come to a place where there's basically there's not the need or there's not that benefit anymore uh, of having of having that DSLR. Uh, there's still going to be you know maybe you want to call it the old timers, and I would put myself in that category. I do appreciate seeing exactly what I'm looking at through the lens as it relates to not having it interpreted by the camera. When you have the the electronic viewfinder, that is interpreted by the camera. You're looking at a tiny little screen in that viewfinder. That's true, so but, but then... That's about the only thing, but even still, you can overlay a histogram on your scene. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And how how awesome one. is that? And you're making... I mean, what you're seeing is what you're going to get. It's wissy right. you yeah. know? It's, yeah. it's going to record exactly how you're seeing it. And so while while I may prefer for a short period of time that that tradition of being able to just <laughs> see directly through the lens and not have to worry about it being interrupted by a couple of pixels i think we're going to get over it and most of us old timers are going to get over it and it's just going to be like you know i really like having that what i see is what i get and so it's as long as they can as long as they can really truly continue to show us what we see is what we get because i have noticed at least with the canon when i'm shooting live view on my 5d4 and 7d mark ii and whatnot there are limits to what that preview is actually able to Mm -hmm. show me and so they haven't caught up to show me exactly what i'm getting because what i see on the back of the camera in live view and then i play the image two totally different things as far as exposure when i'm doing nighttime photography yeah with nighttime and you can well you can actually change that you can change it to um, not be an exposure preview Right. Uh, well, except for night photography. I mean, if you're going to have a very long exposure, something like that, yeah. that's true. But the yeah. other thing that I would say that the DSLR just wins on right now is battery life. Battery life well, on yeah. all mirrorless cameras is just sad. <laughs> it's just true. Well, you have to power that electric electronic viewfinder. Yeah. So that, that takes a lot of battery to do that. Yeah, well, there, it, there are a lot more going on with that and constantly doing the AF and whatnot. Uh, it, just a lot more going on, but they could put a bigger battery in. It just doesn't seem why they, why they couldn't do that. 
Yeah, I I'm excited to see what Nikon comes up with. I, I, I'm excited to see where Nikon goes because they're obviously going through a very tough time right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I would love to see them do is come out with a Nikon D750 replacement that's mirrorless and that they really just go to town on. Uh, yeah. You know, keep the same lens system. Don't change the lenses. Just make it mirrorless um, and add all the, the advantages um, with all that Nikon could do. And that I would, I think we could see a resurgence in Nikon if somebody were to really just go for it, but we'll see. I have not been interested at all in the Canon mirrorless yet, um, but if the rumors are true, there's a full frame mirrorless that will take EF, EF mount mount uh, lenses, then I might be, <laughs> that might convince me to do it. Yeah, that'd be cool. All right. Well, in every episode of the podcast, we like to share a doodad of the week. Jeff, what do you have for us? All right. So I'm going to go for the Magmod Sphere, which I think has been a doodad before, but I just barely got it. I just barely joined Team Magmod <laughs> <laughs> with, with a lot of other of the podcast hosts here. And I used it in that same engagement shoot that I was talking about. <laughs> there was a It was a sunset shoot. Uh, we put the Mag, Mag Sphere on the flash. Single flash was all we needed. Stuck it on the end of a, a monopod and used that. And it was just beautiful lighting. It was so nice. It was nice and soft lighting on them. I love it. You can go see the shots if you follow me on Instagram. It's at Harmon Jeff and, and Instagram. But uh, totally worth the money. I, I waited because it felt like it was expensive to me. It was like more money than the flash <laughs> to get this stuff. Oh. But uh, but as a flash modifier goes, it's uh, very inexpensive and totally worth it. So yeah, if you've got no Magmod gear at all, you have to get the basic kit first. That gives you kind of the base thing that you can, the magnetics you can put around the flash. That's $90 to get the Magmod basic kit. And then it's $50 to get the Magmod sphere that just throw onto it. And uh, it's beautiful. I love that. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, I'm going to recommend Western Digital 8 terabyte NAS drives. Jeff, I have to admit a failure in this podcast. I haven't told you this before, uh, but I did put it on my YouTube video today. Uh, you remember how you warned me about the three terabyte Western Digital greens? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it just went out today. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you know, I already owned them before you'd warned me. So I thought, eh, when it goes out, I'll replace it. But exactly. Yep. Had to exactly. replace it. <laughs> yeah. Sure enough. That's the first drive that has gone on my Drobo. Uh, and mm. I've had, I've, I used that drive for, boy, I think four years. Uh, you got more running. out of it than most then. They they tended to go at two years of use. They were they would die. I got lucky. That's terrible. I got lucky. But anyway, I'm, I'm whenever I replace a drive now, I'm going to eight terabytes. You can get more. You can buy to 12 terabytes. Uh, but but the, the price tends to go up <laughs> per terabyte yes. when you get that high. So I'm trying to go to the upper end because I am going to be running them for a lot of years. But uh, man, eight terabytes. I mean most photographers if you just get one eight terabyte external hard drive man you can fit a lot of photos on that so if you feel like you're outgrowing your hard drive you probably don't need a drobo or a synology or anything like that if you just get a single eight terabyte uh, external hard drive that's going to fit a tremendous amount of data definitely you really only need the drobo and things if you need five of those drives to fit all your stuff. <laughs> right. And that's unfortunately yeah. where I am. But I think very few photographers are, are having that kind of problem. All right. What do you got, Brent? 
I have something that's kind of more like a do random kind of thing, but it's still kind of fun. It's the brand name is Yitty, Y-I-T-E-E. And it's a tiny little USB keychain item that is what it is. It looks like a little circuit board and it's got little LEDs embedded on that circuit board. You plug it into a USB port and it simply is a little flashlight type item. And I wish they had one in red so or other colors, but... Uh, but if you're like doing night photography and you were to plug this into a USB battery port or whatever, uh, you'd be able to not destroy your night vision. But this will just plug into any USB port and it's a little night light wherever you need it. Cool. Yeah. I like it. Or you could just have your computers glowing in the computer room. <laughs> you, you could, but the, you know, maybe you maybe you shut that down for the day and you just whatever. This it comes in a pack of five for thirteen bucks, so it's hard to go wrong. Hey, computers get scared of the dark too. You gotta help them out. (laughs) Hey, thanks guys for chatting with me. It's been a great episode. And listeners, if you would go check out two things, well, three things. First, check out Jeff Harmon's Photo Taco. Second, check out Brent Bergherm's Latitude Podcast. And third, go check out my YouTube channel, Improve Photography. I'm putting a ton of time onto really building that up and putting some fun, entertaining, helpful content on there. So if you haven't subscribed yet, go check out Improve Photography on YouTube, and we'll see you in another seven days.